Hello and welcome to another episode of the NedPro podcast. My name is James Bradfield and I am one of the deputy co-leads of our Global Innovation Panel. My guest on the podcast today is Alan Flanagan. Alan is a PhD student at the University of Surrey. His research is on chrononutrition, which we talked a little bit um, on during the podcast. And he is also the founder of Alinea Nutrition, not Alinea Nutrition, as I called it in the podcast, even though... I had gone to the effort of asking him how it was pronounced before we started recording. So this is a really interesting conversation I had with Alan. We talked a little bit about his own research at Surrey, and then we talked more about research in nutrition being quite a complex field. So we talked about epidemiology, we talked about randomized control trials, we talked about the nature of evidence, um, we talked about things like proof being a, a relative concept rather than an absolute and a little bit at the end as well about nutrition and COVID-19. I have to say it was a conversation that I learned a lot from and I really enjoyed recording and speaking to Alan. So I, I think there's a lot in this for people to um, to learn it from as well. Whether you're a seasoned pro in research, whether you're somebody who's just getting into research now, or if you're a student, I think this is a really good episode as well. So I do hope that you enjoy and that you learn something along the way as well. Alan, thanks so much for, for joining me this evening and for, for giving me a bit of your time. Um, for people who don't know, Alan Flanagan is a PhD researcher at the University of Surrey. His PhD centers around chrononutrition, which refers to timing of food intakes and calorie consumption throughout the day and how that affects the body. I'm sure we can get into more of that later on. Previously, Alan studied for a master's degree in nutritional medicine, also at the University of uh, Surrey. And previous to that, he's practiced law as a barrister in Dublin before making the jump to nutrition. He's the founder of Alinea Nutrition, an online education hub which is dedicated to empowering others with clear impartial evidence-based knowledge and understanding about the science of nutrition. Um, so Alan, like I said, thanks so much for joining me. I know you're really busy. Um, before we get into the content of the, the discussion, I suppose, a bit of nutrition, what um, made you switch career and jump ship from law uh, into the world of nutrition? What was the sort of uh, thinking behind that? Um, so, yeah, so so while I was in law, uh, you know, nutrition was always a subject that really interested me. And I was finding myself reading a lot of research, um, trying to read research, I should say. I didn't have the skill set to. Yeah. Um, and that made me want to pursue formal education. Um, and I found my way through some good recommendations to the University of Surrey MSE, the Nutritional Medicine mm -hmm. MSE, which is modular. I could do it while I stayed working. Um, and over the course of the two years that I was on that course, it, it just deepened my real interest to, to kind of delve into the subject further and, and be involved in research. I really wanted to get into research. So when the opportunity for the current PhD program that I'm on presented itself, which was full time, I was at the fork in the road and uh, decided to pursue nutrition with uh, with uh, kind of all my my time and attention. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you when you say that you got dead interested in it but didn't necessarily have the skills to to, to adequately what what we say sort of navigate um, through the the world of research and you mentioned being a, a PubMed warrior and that kind of thing yeah. and 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 you know um, I I feel like having trained myself there's times where you still think I'm I'm inadequately trained to actually do this um, and go through everything that is out there but I'm I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of people feel like that um, yeah. and and 
So, so yeah, you took you took the chance then to do the PhD in Surrey. So, as I mentioned, it's centering around chrononutrition. Um, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what kind of things you're looking at or what, what things you're measuring? Yeah, so we're uh, interested in teasing out the uh, relative contributions of actual circadian factors mm-hmm. uh, that influence metabolism. So influence gastric emptying, for example, um, influence energy expenditure or the thermic response to, to food intake. Mm-hmm. And there is the potential for those factors to be influenced by behavioral factors so by behavioral i mean the sleep wake cycle so when someone goes to bed and, and, and wakes up uh, their light exposure their meal timing during the day so there there will be behavioral factors mm. um and then obviously the they can kind of change um relative to different you know environmental uh, factors like their work or their commute or even just personal preferences and so well, we know that circadian rhythms, which always are around 24 hours in length, um, uh, are really important for pretty much every kind of cell and tissue and organ in the body. Um, the respective kind of contributions between circadian rhythms and behavioral factors is still being teased out. Um, so what we've been doing is a, a kind of forced jet lag protocol where we uh, delayed people's behaviors by five hours. So for, for two days, they're in the lab eating breakfast at say eight, lunch at one, dinner at six, and then having a normal 10 to seven um, sleep uh, kind of cycle in the lab. Yeah. Um, and then we're delaying everything by five hours. So suddenly breakfast is at one, lunch is at 6 p.m., dinner is at midnight, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, and their sleep-wake cycle is delayed and, and everything. So by, by suddenly shifting the timing of their behaviors, so their sleep-wake cycle and their meal timing and their light exposure and their activity, we're, we're trying to tease out whether factors like their thermic response to food intake and their blood glucose regulation and their insulin responses and, and energy expenditure in particular are really driven more by circadian factors so mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a cool study it's a it's a human study um lab based we we finished the study last august and we've been kind of working our way through the the mountains of data that we got from it since then yeah i can i was just i was just going to say i can imagine the amount of things you measured the amount of yeah data that you must have to actually go through and kind of mine through really to look for um those sort of golden golden tickets and that um i was i was thinking as well you, you know sometimes you 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 um when you're speaking to somebody about their research you you completely forget that there are people involved in this as well what kind of reaction did you have from your participants like were they happy to do it or were they did people get fed up during it because I, I imagine i'm just yeah. thinking, thinking from a selfish point of view if you shifted my uh, routine five hours i'd be really put out right and, and that's the thing and so one thing that i have come away from that study in particular with is an enormous appreciation for for a people who volunteer for this research particularly nutrition research because we, we don't have the coffers to give them the kind of monetary compensation that you might yeah. get in a, in a pharma trial for example um 
So I, I have a huge appreciation for, for that. Um, and we had a really difficult study protocol where they were in the lab for um, essentially eight days. Um, right. and your, and the test days were really invasive. Um, we would have had people, um, having their resting metabolic rate measured via indirect calorimetry. So they're, they're under this perspex hood for 30 minutes in the morning yeah. before breakfast. Then they have to eat within a 15 minute window. And then we were measuring them under that hood uh, for 10 minutes, every 30 minutes for the next 16 hours. Yeah. Um, they were getting blood drawn. Uh, 16 times a day. Um, they were doing breath samples. They were doing questionnaires. It was a really invasive protocol. And, and in all of this, you're having your light exposure, your sleep, you're sleeping in a, a single bed sleep lab, which is soundproof and temperature controlled and just a bit weird, to be honest. A bit clinical, to, to use yes. an obvious term. Yeah. And, you know, every aspect of your life is controlled. You don't see at a window for eight days. Um, yeah. And so it was a really difficult uh, study to execute. I'm incredibly yeah. grateful to the people who, who participated. And in terms of motivations, it was an interesting mix. You know, we had mm. people who we had one participant whose son was a type one diabetic and he was just really interested in metabolism and wanted to, okay. to kind of contribute to a study that was looking at, you know, metabolic factors and, and um, we had people doing it because it was going to pay off a holiday, for example. Yeah, it's, it's, as, it's as good a reason as any, really, isn't it? Right, yeah, you know. And so um, we had people doing it purely out of wanting to contribute to science. Although they were still getting, you know, monetary compensation. But, you yeah. know, just their, their actual motivation was just wanting to be a part of, of, of scientific study. Um, and, you know, we had people who were completely fine through the whole protocol and you couldn't phase them at all. You know, we had one guy who was uh, uh, had been a career Royal Marine and was in the first Gulf War in Iraq. And, okay. you know, so like, you know, it, this was water off a duck's back. I was going to say you used to kind of tough conditions. So you weren't, you weren't going to break him in, in, so in, he in was, course he of eight days. Fine, you know, and then, and then we did have people who, you know, we had some kind of emotional moments, um, you know, for example, one of the participants and, and it's little things. So you're in this environment where you're being poked and prodded the whole time. Um, but she, she got a text from uh, a, a, her sister to say that a cat, her cat had gone missing. And, okay. and that, that, that really, you know, that, that you know, there was, um, you know, a, a difficult kind of hour or so where, you know, there was kind of the the potential that they might leave the study. Um, mm. So no, they didn't on uh, this stage. Um, and but but it's just an example of how you know, these are human beings, and we're you know we 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 you know we owe a lot to them, and it's it's understandable why so much of the circadian and the chrono literature is in is in rodent models and mm. in translational models. Um, because it's difficult to do this to humans. <laughs> I I was going to say, and it it actually you know it 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 further emphasizes i suppose the, the point you know we we were saying before we started kind of recording about you you all sometimes can almost forget in trials in nutrition that it is people it is humans and we're doing it for people who have opinions and emotions and everything yeah. like that and actually something like that you know your your cat going missing or anything that's going to affect you on an emotional level is yeah. probably also going to have an effect on all the things that you're measuring so actually probably a really good example of sort of real life tying in with your um 
with your study there and then as well but maybe maybe you've done maybe you've done those people a favor and kind of getting them used to to lockdown and everything covid related <laughs> i would imagine having done our study they're, they're absolutely fine in lockdown <laughs> yeah 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 they're, they they think they're on holiday as it is no that's, that sounds really interesting i was, I was going to say um you know and what happened but i suppose we, that's that's yet to be yet to be yeah so some that. of some of some of well some of the data that we have to date what it, what it looks like right now is that the the thermic effect of of breakfast of the first meal mm-hmm. after the after everything was delayed by five hours was blunted in compared to the previous day when everything was on a normal kind of uk time schedule yeah um, so that's interesting we need to dig a bit more to really tease out whether it's just circadian or whether it's actually just behavioral um yeah. and, and and one thing that we're interested in is is trying to which a lot of other research groups kind of haven't done is trying to build into your calculation for thermic effective feeding the actual circadian value for the circadian variance in RMR. Most studies just compare the baseline pre-meal resting metabolic rate value with the energy expenditure over and above the calorie content of the meal and assume that that's all thermic effective feeding. Mm -hmm. But actually there's, there's this underlying circadian variance there that we need to account for. So there could be an interesting kind of spin-off publication from it that, that is more actually, um, proposing a, a hypothesis of of you know additional circadian influences on thermic response to feeding but um yeah so that that's that's probably the most interesting aspect that's come out so far brilliant yeah so so watch this space really so and see um wait wait for actual um publications and everything else exactly. um so Alan, any anyone who follows you on Instagram will know that you're well used to delving into the the real nitty gritty of um of research of nutrition, and you don't mind putting together very very long Instagram stories and talking about them. Um, we met uh, not so long ago at a conference in London that was organised by NutriTank and the Royal Society for Medicine, um, and you your talk was on understanding a complex field, um, fr- from epidemiology through to randomized controlled trials rcts yeah so i want to ask you a couple of questions about that you had a really nice graphic in one of your slides and it was about um confounders versus moderating factors and it was something that as someone who is you know trained in nutrition science and um now a dietitian it's something that i was i think subconsciously aware of and has have obviously read but whatever way you sort of went through it and described the fact that there's things that people think that we're looking at, um, which is the diet, for example, or sorry, the, the relationship directly between diet and the disease outcome, whereas actually what we're looking at is the effect of um, your diet in this case, which you were referring to as an exposure on these intermediate factors. So, for example, like hypertension, insulin secretion, blood glucose levels those kind of things and and how those then moderate and have the uh the effect on the disease outcome how, how that middle step really is missed sometimes yeah can you talk a little bit more about that because you, you you do a far yeah. better job of, of um so than it's, I do. it's it's something that it's 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 and it's it's not unique to to nutrition uh, as a science there are kind of other disciplines where this concept is is talked about a lot because it's missed but um the, the genesis for that talk, and I, I've, I've given a similar one um, at another, um, at a CGC um, 
uh, at uh, St. Helier's Hospital. So two mm-hmm. And the reason I, I, I give that theme to medical doctors is because there's a kind of assumption in, certainly if you're trained in the biomedical uh, model of, 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 of evidence and assessment, that that is just the model for for science and, and and for biological sciences in particular yeah um and that's a really problematic assumption and often what happens when when certainly when medical professionals come to start looking at nutrition research is there's this kind of assumption that all of those kind of core tenets of the biomedical model the hierarchy of evidence um you know, the desire for very high internal validity RCTs, controlling for all confounders possible to really show that an exposure causes the outcome. Yeah. They're all very biomedical uh, core principles that are achievable if your exposure of interest is, is a pharmaceutical or, or a specific kind of intervention, surgeries or drugs, basically. Yeah. Um, it doesn't neatly translate to other uh, sciences. Um, and an example of a science that broke away from that model years ago, way before us, we, we should have followed probably, but uh, is the biomedical, uh, is the biopsychosocial model in, in psychiatry and psychology. And, and that evolved out of the purely biomedical model in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that within this framework becomes um, somewhat of a, a problematic assumption for nutrition science is this idea that everything is inherently confounded. And critics of nutrition as a science will often say that, even in in in, in peer-reviewed publications, and say, "Well, we can't trust nutrition because the results are confounded. We can't trust nutritional epidemiology because everything is confounded." And yeah. and I started really digging at this because um, while while law didn't give me any specific skills for science necessarily, what it did give me was a kind of cultural habit uh, or tendency to like push to be able to know where your evidence comes from. Like it's a real thing in law. You can't just walk in and say, here is my evidence. This yeah, document. evidence suggests. You have to, yeah. yeah, you have to prove wh- even where your evidence comes from. Mm. So that's always been a way that I've looked at nutrition and, and I started picking at this idea of confounding. And you, you come to realize that and and this is you know not a made up thing. <laughs> Other people published about this, yeah, but yeah. there's a fundamental difference between a confounder and a modifying factor or a mediating factor. Um, and if we're able to distinguish those, then we're able to come to some better conclusions about certainly kind of causal inference in nutritional epidemiology, or even our understanding of of how you know, a dietary exposure, whether it's a nutrient or a particular diet or food actually influences the, the outcome we're looking at. So just as an example, because I know that we're talking quite abstract in this. Yeah. If we take, for example, a confounder in nutrition, in the mid 90s, there was one or two cohort studies that suggested a, a quite linear relationship between cups of coffee a day and heart disease. Um, and Sandra Greenland, who is um, a, an incredibly eminent uh, epidemiologist at, I believe, UCLA, um, did a, a, a picked at that finding. And ultimately, what it was was that people with high coffee intake 
were also smokers. And there, there seemed to be a bit of a, a kind of dose response between that. So okay. people who smoked a lot drank a lot of coffee. Once you controlled for smoking, the relationship with coffee fell away. Mm-hmm. So th- that is a confounder in the classic sense because the, expo- the, the confounder, smoking, is causally associated with the outcome, which is heart disease, but it's also related to, the, to, the, to, to coffee. Yeah, so, so, so there's a hidden factor there that's having the associated with the exposure um, right. that you measured, which goes hand yeah. in hand with it. Okay. Exactly, but it's not caused by the by the so exactly you, yeah coffee drinking does not cause you to smoke so it's related to the outcome but it's not caused by either the outcome or the other exposure yes so that's a confounder in the classic sense but if we take two examples of uh, a modifying an effect modifier or a modifying factor that's you know not a confounder one and and this has been an issue in some of the recent studies is. Um, we know that, for example, when it comes to dietary influences on heart disease, that first off, from the overwhelming evidence from biomedical sciences, we know that LDL cholesterol is, is causal in, in atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that from multiple metabolic ward studies and epidemiology that higher dietary saturated fat intake is, is associated with heart disease incidence and it's mediated by impacts on blood cholesterol, in particular LDL. Yeah. That's a moderating factor or a modifying factor. And what numerous analyses do in looking at the relationship between saturated fat and heart disease is control for blood cholesterol levels or blood lipids. And in doing so, because the relationship is mediated by LDL cholesterol, if you control for that, you get the same effect you got when you controlled for a confounder, only now you've actually attenuated a true association. So you've controlled for blood cholesterol levels, but in doing so, you've taken out of the equation the factor that modifies the relationship between the dietary exposure, in this case, saturated fat, and the outcome, in this yeah. case, heart disease. And that's something that there just doesn't seem to be, you know, a, a lot of the, the conversation doesn't seem to account for the difference between confounders and effect modifiers. Um, as, as another example, just, just so it, it's not always necessarily an impact on a physiological process, although it can be, mm-hmm. um, another quite well-established relationship is the relationship between sodium and, and cardiovascular disease, high sodium levels in the diet. Yeah. And often people will make an argument that, oh, well, it's not necessarily just high sodium. It's, if someone has high sodium, they've low potassium. So it's not the sodium, it's the low potassium. That's actually, it's more of a tautological line of thinking than anything. Because yes, dietary uh, factors, constituents, nutrients never exist in a vacuum. If something's high, some in our saturated fat example, higher total intakes tend to be related to lower levels of polyunsaturated fats. We yeah. know that that's an important factor, but that's an effect modifier. And the important distinction is that while, sure, if you had a high sodium intake, you may have low potassium. If you had a high potassium intake with, with very high sodium intake, you still might have an association. It's just the size of the effect would be, would be mitigated or attenuated somewhat. Mm-hmm. 
And what fundamentally distinguishes sodium as a potentially causal exposure versus potassium as an effect modifier is that potassium in and of itself is not causally related to the outcome. High potassium, low potassium per se, if we take sodium out of the equation, mm. is not causally related to hypertension uh, and potentially cardiovascular disease or stroke. So this is the fundamental distinction because the relationship still, it doesn't invalidate whether it's potassium or you know, other nutrients or fruits and vegetable intake, if we want to talk about food, those factors don't invalidate that a causal relationship exists between the exposure and the outcome. So for example, sodium and heart disease. And we tend to probably reduce the veracity of a lot of the findings in nutrition as a science, particularly epidemiology, mm -hmm. which is more reliable than people give it credit for. And um, when we when we fail to distinguish between confounders and effect modifiers, uh, and the fundamental difference being that while a confounder is going to obviously influence the outcome directly, and therefore confound the, the, the association, an effect modifier, it, that's what it's, it's influencing the size or the magnitude of the actual effect, but it doesn't invalidate that a relationship exists between that exposure and outcome. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good summation of it. And like I said, I'm glad I asked you to do it rather than try to do it myself, because I think, again, it's, it's one of those things that very often you kind of mentioned it, it's, it's kind of thrown in the face of all epidemiology that, oh, well, that's confounding factor or there are confounding yes. factors as if that is a just a one size fits all um rebuttal of all epidemiology right whereas well, like you know, like you say confounder <laughs> say that again food is a you know if, if i yeah. eat an apple like how many biologically active compounds are in that exactly. single food you know? yeah exactly and if you were to pick up the apple the red apple or versus the green apple you know it, it, it's 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 all those things i think it's really important point the the, right. the sort of the difference between the confounder and the moderator yeah. so basically if what we're saying then is that there are certain things whereby you like use the the coffee and the smoking example whereby it is just coincidence that the coffee consumption um tended to go up as um, heart disease did but the coincidence is accounted for by the fact that the coffee consumption tends to go hand in hand with the smoking consumption whereas the other example you gave was the um, saturated fat and ldl it's almost like the ldl is the the sort of the, the catalyst for right. the the um heart yeah, disease LDL later on. smoking gun for exactly so if if, if like that if you um account for that if you um if you um adjust for ldl what you're really doing is you're removing your catalyst and you're saying, okay, well, obviously if you take out the, the moderating factor, you're removing the, the outcome then as well. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a really important thing to, to talk about. And I think it's not something that we always do. Um, we, because again, with epidemiology, like I say, it's sort of something, a stick that's used to bash all of epi, epi is that, um, well, you know, confounding factors. The, what, there is one thing to add there that I think is really important, which is, Sure. Again, often nutrition is, is, is beaten because there's a reliance on long-term prospective cohort studies. And people yeah. say, well, you know, you, you, you can't know that this finding is in any way kind of legitimate until there's a randomized controlled trial because then we can control for variables. 
first off, based on everything that we've said, it should be obvious that you can never control for all variables, even in a, a tightly controlled intervention. Yeah. But, but more importantly, that's, it's also oversimplistic thinking from a scientific perspective about the, the role of, of randomization and control of variables versus the role of control and adjustment in epidemiology. Mm-hmm. And, and what, it, what it relates to is prior knowledge. The reason that a randomized control trial is, is, is helpful is because, sure, you can balance known covariates like BMI or gender or, you know, um, baseline dietary intake between groups. Yeah. But it's more so from a causal perspective, it's more so that it balances unknown covariates between the two groups, between the mm. intervention and control. What distinguishes that, and sure, in epidemiology, you cannot control for unknown variables, obviously. Yeah. But where you know enough about the exposure that you're looking at and potential confounders, you can use really you know, well thought out and, and expansive adjustment models to account for a lot of these variables. And there, there, there isn't, I think, enough of an appreciation for what that actually achieves you know, in epidemiology. And if, if you've got a well-adjusted model in epidemiology, it's, it's as much you know, power in a finding as a badly conducted RCT, so this this is it. I mean, the the so there's a couple of things to kind of unpick there. I suppose, like like you say, a, a well designed epidemiological study versus a poorly designed RCT. Okay, mm. your epidemiological study can never prove causation, so that's that's rule number one. Fine, but if it infers it or if it suggests a relationship to it, like you say, with all this quite sophisticated. Um, um, adjustments then surely at some point we have to say okay this this is at least something worth looking at yeah it, you know there will always be the people who say yes but we cannot say it proves but realistically with with diet and nutrition because the exposure is over you know a lifetime let's be fair for for in the vast majority of cases or at least over long periods of time mm. it's it's almost impossible anyway to to pinpoint where and when um, effect is coming from the diet you know what I mean and exactly right. how, how we say well when you were 13 and you ate that or when you were you know you, that that period of your life when you were following that dietary pattern or that period of your life where you um, were exercising loads so your dietary pattern was different and it's just you know where where can we the, the, it's over such a long period of time it's almost impossible right. to, to really um, to do so accurately that's the logistical difficulty that that some of the kind of biomedical purists that have bashed nutrition in in various kind of publications over the last few years really seem to not be able to kind of grasp this this logistical difficulty and assume Mm -hmm. that we can do 40-year rcts that will tell us everything we need to know and it's it's just this i find it interesting because it it just immediately contradicts itself you know, we know that, and this is something we were talking about before, that dietary interventions are behavioral in nature. Yeah. And what, one of the fundamental um, kind of pillars of, of randomization, and this goes right the way back to Fisher's initial concept of like why randomization was, 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 uh, you know, really. Um, the gold standard. Kind of the, yeah, yeah. Is what, what randomization also achieves Um other than the, the factors we were talking about balancing covariates between groups is if you want to show causation, 
in in a, in a if we're being really kind of strict to the kind of principles by which causation is demonstrated in an RCT setting, then it's also conditional upon no covariates being introduced post randomization. Mm-hmm. So you randomize people, and then nothing changes other than the exposure in the intervention group and and the and the placebo and the control group. But if you think about that from a nutrition perspective, that's utterly untenable. So as soon as people are randomized, unless you're keeping them and and if the trial is going to go on for anything less than, you know, anything more than a month, presumably it's going to be free living. And once you're in that context, then as soon as you might randomize them to four tablespoons of olive oil a day, but the assumption that no other covariates are introduced post-randomization is is entirely untenable. It's completely infeasible. So, it's, it's it's also unmeasurable. You know what I mean? It's because unmeasurable. I, 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 like in terms of again, if we go back to a that reductionist idea and, and sort of the, the, you know placebo controlled randomized a placebo double blind placebo randomized controlled trial, right? And we have somebody who's receiving a drug. You're receiving a drug, saying I'm receiving a placebo. Even if you say it's you know it's it's not lab uh, based, it's free living. But they you know Alan once a day for. 60 days will take this drug and James won't then right. after 60 days you you can tell if Alan has been taking it based you know again I'm not a right. pharmacologist but depending on what the drug is based on the amount in your system we can say yes has he adhered to it yes or no with obviously with James with the placebo you would expect to see none of the drug in his system regardless of what it is right. but with nutrition again even that idea of you know if, if you say to somebody you're following this dietary pattern for um a month even if if we take something like it's it's um you know james you're following a vegan diet for six for this month if james on day 13 of the month has you know a slice of cheese or a burger there's not going to be enough in that there's nothing identifiable in that at the end of the month to say no he didn't stick to it mm-hmm. and we that's like when you were saying earlier on about nutrition being behavioral that's that's one of my biggest problems or i suppose that i've come across as a student and one of the sources of frustration when people talk about how um, dietary intervention is you know why don't we put them on this diet why don't we put them on that diet is, right yeah you can't as make if you're prescribing a drug exactly and and you know I, I i know that there are there's a there's problems with adherence to drugs as well for example in drug trials or just in in everyday practice i mean i've i've had patients um and you know i've had patients with chronic kidney disease and you say to them oh you've been taking you know your phosphate's gone quite high have you been taking your phosphate binders oh no i've I've forgotten about them so you know adherence is an issue there as well but with nutrition with a diet you you literally cannot make someone do it if they don't want to do it and you ultimately then maybe take a step back in order to take two steps forward the next time you see the person so you end up doing something like you know in your first consultation literally just establishing a rapport with someone getting to know them getting them on site and trying to get them to fill out a diet you know a diet um history and a bit of a diary so that the next time you can actually start implementing things rather than saying oh well you know today I'm going, I'm going to see you the first day you need to implement all these changes it's just it's just not realistic and again I, I think it's something that the RCT model doesn't always um, maybe give diet credit for is how right. how complex it is because again even if you if you if you take a really perfectly designed randomized control trial and you remove all of the variables in life okay? 
yes, you yeah. get a, you get fanta- you get a fantastic result where you say this is our exposure, this is your outcome, and then you say, well, then you put people back into real life. So suddenly now for the the um, perfectly designed study that accounted and um, for everything is, <laughs> is is that now applicable in real life? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. The 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 high internal validity, perfect. You know demonstrate demonstrable causality and then you have to wonder and this is the funny thing about causal um kind of conversations is that there's this really gross assumption that causation once shown in a circumstance holds true is is universal by default and we obviously know that's not the case all any assuming this kind of like high internal validity a causes b outcome in a trial all that shows is that the results were true in that population in only, that at that, in that yeah. time and place, in that circumstance. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know, coming back to that idea of like what you were saying about the, 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 the kind of you know compliance essentially and the behavioural aspect, that idea that 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 some of the critics of nutrition have put forward that oh, we need to nutrition should abandon epidemiology and only do large simple RCTs. It's like. That wouldn't that wouldn't be anything but observational. In we would still <laughs> yeah. never be able to show causation. Yeah, and 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 so it's this kind of oversimplistic thinking about what causation actually, what standards need to be met in order to uh, have causal inference. And the reality is because we are concerned now at a population level with diseases that have long latency periods and. Are, are chronic in nature and may, you know, you may be having dietary practices in someone's 30s or 40s influence heart disease incidents 20 years later. The only practical design, research design to investigate those relationships is the prospective cohort study. So it's, yeah. it's not going anywhere. And methodology can be improved dietary assessment methods can be improved improved one of the points that i actually made in that talk is that nutrition uh, respective cohort studies particularly food frequency questionnaires are another kind of like punching bag for some people um, generally from outside the field um i I can think of one exercise physiologist in in the united states who just has this bee in his bonnet about dietary assessment methods in Mm. in epidemiology but when we talk about the you know the, the ultimate question is do they have sufficient granularity to to capture the exposures we're interested in um and i think i had this slide correct me if i'm wrong dude but when we talk about other um biomarkers of, of risk blood cholesterol levels blood glucose levels and blood pressure systolic and diastolic blood pressure the coefficient of variation uh for those measures at a population level is around 65 percent give or take yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. I, I remember that slide. Yeah, somewhere between fifty. Right. So the, the coefficient yeah. for a variation for major macronutrients that we're generally interested in: saturated fat, total fat, dietary carbohydrate, protein is all around the same. Now, yeah. no one, no one doesn't think hypertension is a risk for heart disease and stroke. No one doesn't think yeah, blood yeah. lipids are a risk factor for for cardiovascular disease. So this idea that nutrition is somehow the the pseudoscience and the the one that's unreliable and inaccurate, I just find it really difficult to fathom where that 
comes from at an objective level, it's not 100% accuracy, but it has sufficient granularity to allow us to infer conclusions from the data. Yeah, and I think that's, a, you know, you when you said about it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not perfect, it's not exact, but is there a perfect study in anything? No. Is there ever bi- going to be a perfect study? Sciences. Not in biological science and not when you're dealing with people who are ultimately, I mean, we, you know, um, we're not, what do I say? We're not sort of, um, humans are not logical. Is that fair to say? In that yeah. we sort yeah. of, um, we're unpredictable, we're emotional, we're um, everything else. And, and I think that's something as well that's forgotten about with, food well well i I usually say with diet but i actually mean with food this time because yeah food is about so much more than nutrients you know and and again that's you know that's a common thing that you hear people say we don't eat nutrients we eat food but like a thing that i wrote about not too long ago in an article that i wrote was about you know food is central to everything we do you know celebrations oh let's go for a meal you know um something something bad happens or we we, look we'll go and get something to eat get something you know a treat or a bit of chocolate or whatever it is and by trying to distill it down to the core components and keep bringing it back further 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 let more removed from real life you then get to a point where you say yeah okay this is a perfect study but actually is is this even useful now you know, right, is, is exactly. this actually, again, going back to that internal and external validity, is this actually useful for anybody now? Because it's so removed from real life and, and right. um, you know, the human condition or whatever whatever way you want to put it. And I, I think that's something that, that we potentially forget about when we when we just talk about RCTs being the be all and end all of, of all research. Yeah, and I, I think for nutrition, I, I definitely feel like there's a bit of a move within the field, kind of away from this biomedical dogma of, mm. of how to do research. And, you know, you see discussions about using more pragmatic RCT designs. So they're implemented kind of in the setting that the intervention will be actually run, you know, if it's successful. Um, you see, obviously, improvements in in, in epidemiology and understanding that you know large large cohorts with a sufficient contrast and exposure uh, will yield more consistent results and so you, a lot of recent cohort studies like epic the european uh, perspective investigation into cancer mm-hmm. um and some of the recent u.s cohort studies were deliberately designed to account for that and to have sufficient numbers um, and to have enough of a contrast in, in, in dietary intake that you've got meaningful comparisons. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the field is still improving and, and evolving. And I think that there's a way to do interventions. There's obviously still a place for, for you know, more controlled interventions. And of course, Kevin, yeah. Hall's, Kevin Hall's research, for example, and all of his one-month-long metabolic ward studies, I mean, there are, you know, they're fantastic, you know, yeah. they very much, but they're, they're rare, you know, the, for example, you know, to testing the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, it's, mm-hmm. it's rare that model falsification in that way happens in nutrition, but it, but it can happen. So the point isn't that we're just dispensing with, 
you know, kind of biomedical RCTs. The point is that they don't neatly translate or fit nutrition as a science always. And actually we're better off using more single blind interventions, which, which inherently a lot of them have to be anyway. Yeah. And also kind of entertaining using more pragmatic RCT designs where you don't even, you don't use blinding in pragmatic RCTs and you're more concerned with designing and implementing an intervention in the actual setting that it would be used in real life. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, these are all ways that, you know, that the field is, is going to develop an evidence base and, and has developed an evidence base over the past, you know, 40, 50 years that is actionable. And I think people forget that ultimately science isn't about getting the perfect answer. It's about getting information and yeah. data that we can use to improve people's health and people's lives. And I think, you know, ultimately nutrition has, has achieved that largely. And I think people often forget that success. It's very easy to look at the things that we don't know and kind of poke right. and prod and say, why don't we know that yet? And why, why haven't we put a definitive answer on that? And I think that is also sort of fundamentally misunderstanding science, just generally, exactly. because I mean, um, I I really like comedy. I know um you know Daryl O'Brien that that he's an mm-hmm. Irish comedian and he he yeah. made the point before you know people say well science doesn't know everything and he said well of course science doesn't know everything if it did it would stop you know what I mean yeah. and it would cease to be a field of interest and study and yeah. everything and I think that's yeah. the that's the thing as well is we can potentially get a little bit caught up in where we are now because you know it's where you and I are working and researching and whatever else into into thinking that. Well, we know a lot now, but in 20 years, we're going to know a lot more. In 100 years, they're going to know an even huge amount more. And it's also worth bearing in mind how new a science nutrition is. You know, it's, <clears throat> this is a thing that I, I've often kind of thought about is if you compare it to physics or chemistry or one of the really mm-hmm. broader kind of sciences, like nutrition is, what would we say, if, if we give it yeah. comfortably, would we say 100 I mean, years? I, you know, I, if, I, if, just to be, yeah, I think it, be it depends on where you, if you're, if you're, if, I mean, if we go from the dis- the real discovery of the first vitamin, you're talking about 1913, so yeah. just like 107 years. Exactly. So, I mean, to, to, to think that in 100 years, we'd have kind of uncovered everything to do with it. And mm. it, it, it's also interesting because much like a lot of healthcare, I suppose you could say, really, and, and medicine, you know, the problems that we're facing nutritionally have changed so much in the last will we say 30 40 years like we again before we started recording you and i were talking about well the reductionist approach to nutrition science worked really well when what we had was single nutrient deficiencies or Mm -hmm. we had um you know those those sort of um problems iodine deficiency vitamin c all those kind of things but now with the more complex multi-factorial multi-morbid conditions to to think that there's going to be one answer to think that there's going to be one diet or actually worse than that to think that there's going to be a single food that will you know be the, right. the sort of panacea um is just it's just not going to happen is it and, and this also comes back to the 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 talk we were having uh, before we recorded about about the absence of qualitative research in, in nutrition as a science uh, yes. as a major limitation because when we discuss what we're obviously very interested in the nutritional determinants of, of chronic lifestyle disease um, and, and that will remain. But I think the field really also needs to, and, and has, and in the last, I think, certainly five years, I think this, this drum is banging louder. But the reality that when we're talking about diet now, 
you know, ultimately diet's arguably a symptom itself. Like the diet that people are consuming at a population level in Western industrialized countries that that is causally related to these chronic lifestyle conditions Mm -hmm. is, is almost a proxy for poverty, inequality, you know, wealth disparity in societies. Exactly. Um, and um, it's it's really, and, and I think in many respects, COVID-19 has really exposed that. You've got, mm. for example, um, a report that came out the other day, 5 million children in the UK have, 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 have experienced, you know, hunger and food insecurity as a result of, of this outbreak. Families yeah. that rely on school meals have had, you know, essentially no support um in they've gotten 15 pounds a week from the government i think but what mm. can you do with 15 quid a week you know if you're if you're generally reliant on on your kids having one if not two meals a day in in school yeah. um so I, I think that you know a lot of these issues that we're talking about you know we're, we're beyond even the evidence hierarchy of <laughs> rcts and anything else we're, we're into really needing to have a, a, a scrutiny of a lot of the kind of social injustices that are contributing to what's on people's plates. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's 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 something that, again, having done uh, an undergraduate in nutrition science and then started uh, done this master's in dietetics, I think that was my biggest learning, is, is that in nutrition science you learn the ins and outs of the biochemistry, the physiology, and the sort of, I suppose, the factual nature of um, a, a kind of everything we've we've spoken about, um, diet as an exposure, uh, effect on um, different aspects of, of um, physiology, and then disease outcomes. Whereas then when you go into dietetics, and obviously it's very people-focused and patient-centered, you suddenly realize that, like, yes, we know by and large how to have a, a healthy diet okay it's going to vary different mm-hmm. different uh, depending on who you ask slightly but by and large i think when i say a healthy diet a lot of people probably have a similar idea maybe 70 percent uh idea in their head mm-hmm. it's not as simple like a lot of people know how to eat well this is this is the other thing is like a lot of people know that you should you know uh, eat lots of fruits and veg you know eat some meat not maybe not too much try and avoid really fatty foods really sweet foods um sweet uh, foods high in salt sugar fat those kind of things mm-hmm. but like you were saying if you're getting very limited amount of money from the government or from your job or you just have you know other uh, considerations when it comes to feeding yourself or your kids or your family right. are you going to then prioritize making sure that they get the right phytonutrients and that they have plenty of this yes. and that? Or are you going to say, I'm just going to get something that I know, I know they'll eat and I know will keep them full and keep them, keep them happy. And it's something that again gets lost maybe in, in research because we're so focused on facts and factual. Pro- exactly. Yeah. That do we forget about the qualitative, the, the why and the, I suppose the, like you were saying, the societal factors and, and influencing, um, kind of factors you know food deserts is a big problem food bank use in the uk at the moment it has gone up i don't yeah, know how much for in, in, you know it's 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 i mean food bank use in the uk is high anyway for a for a, a country of its wealth and yeah. then in the last few weeks and months with with covid19 obviously it's spiked further and you know really it's 
it, it by just looking at the the real stringent facts of of um again the nutrition science you probably lose a lot of the nuance of diet if that kind of makes sense that's it um speaking of covid-19 that kind of brings me on to a a slight segue into that so at the moment we're seeing a lot of talk about you know immune boosting and <laughs> uh, different dietary things that we can do for for covid-19 and for anyone who hasn't seen um the nedpro we've set up a in nedpro we've set up a covid-19 task force where we've drawn together lots of different resources we've got a dedicated kind of microsite on our website and it has some nutrition resources on it as well and basically trying to give out good information and and take away from the maybe some of the the noise we'll call it Alan, what's your sort of opinion on nutrition and COVID-19 and the, again, the sort of the requirement to have an RCT to change practice? Yeah. It's a big question, I know. Uh, yeah, well, I think, you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, the first thing is, uh, you know, I've, I've been in, in many respects somewhat surprised to see, you know, even kind of actual published papers seem to really overreach on, on that. And one paper that I can think of, for example, recently that came out a couple of weeks ago, it was actually, it was, it was from uh, Ireland. Uh, I can't remember the hospital, but mm. kind of in was the title. The, the, yeah, I know the D, way it, you know? yeah. And, and you, but you And I thought in my head, I got someone sent it to me. And I thought, because it was, I think maybe in March, I thought, well, it could be cross-sectional. Maybe, maybe they've looked at severity of patients in a hospital relative to 25-hydroxyvitamin D status, which you could do quite quickly in a cross-sectional context. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I read it, and it was just a narrative review, essentially, of, of vitamin D in other respiratory conditions with a putative mechanism of how that might actually relate to COVID-19. And I was like, how is COVID-19 in the title here? So I think even even... Even at the level of publishing, there's been this kind of desire for 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 you know um, finding that kind of nutrient or that that supplemental perhaps intervention that might ma- might make a difference. And um, yeah, so the, the overreach aspect is something I've been cautious about. Mm. Um, you know, to to say that obviously food and 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 diet have important roles in and providing important nutrients for the immune system is obvious. The idea that you could change that in terms of legitimate immune function within a couple of days from a dietary practice is stretching things in a big way. Mm. Um, what I've also been interested in is is how you know when we talk about immunity from from a nutrition perspective, you know, that these are often like long term influences that go back even to if we're talking about. Um, you know, host immunity at the level of the gut. You know, we're going back to delivery methods, feeding practices and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So the idea that there is something acute that someone could start doing when this epidemic happened that could influence their immune status um, has, has, has obviously a, a popular narrative and appeal. But ultimately, you know, we're, we're not at that, at that level necessarily with, with any evidence, but to your point about would something interesting emerge, would we need an RCT to act? Um, and, and, and that's where, you know, I, my, my answer, even if this wasn't a pandemic, would still be no. 
-hmm. for multiple reasons. The first is, I think we confuse a lot in, in scientific discourse. We often confuse or conflate proof with proof of causation. And they're distinct things. As an example of that, um, in New Zealand in the late 1980s, there was really high rates of sudden infant death syndrome. Mm -hmm. And a case control study was undertaken. And a case control, if we're, if we're being you know, strict to the hierarchy of evidence, a case control study basically means nothing. You know? yeah. yeah, pretty low evidence. Or low so a case control stuff. study was, was done with 128 uh, children who had, had died of SIDS um, against 500 uh, controls to examine factors. And what, what was identified from that was that sleeping in a prone position seemed to significantly increase risk in, mm -hmm. a, case, in a case control study. And there was never going to be an RCT randomizing babies to the to the prone position. Yeah, right? of course. There was never going to, and but because it was, there was sufficient proof, not that sleeping in the prone position caused sudden infant death syndrome, but that sleeping in a prone position increased risk, causally increased risk, because yeah. the difference in the in the occurrence rates were, was so stark that that causal inference could be made. And, and I suppose in using that example, and I, I know you're using it because it's quite an extreme and obvious example, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the alternative, which is laying the child on its back, doesn't right. have any drawback. You, you know what I mean? There's, there, there's no sort of, well, you can't do that because blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, exactly. it's, it's an obvious, what do we say? It's like a low-hanging fruit. It's a completely, um, yeah, it's a low-risk low intervention then. So yeah. the, 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 based on that case control study, a, a public health initiative was lost, an education program uh, was launched kind of education program and otherwise and recommendations for, and there was a really dramatic reduction in the incidence of sudden infant death syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now I, I use that as an example, although you've correctly highlighted it as it's an extreme example. I use it as an example to kind of discuss this difference between proof. Proof is relative to the, to the standard required to intervene or to, to act mm -hmm. uh, for the, for the benefit of, of people receiving it. And, you know, in law, for example, you don't you don't just have proof in a general sense. Like proof in a murder trial is beyond all reasonable doubt. That's the standard you have to meet. Yeah. But that that's not the standard in a breach of contract dispute, which is on balance of probabilities. So proof is relative to the to the question you're asking, mm. whereas proof of causation is different. And so, you know, where evidence starts to emerge that there are certain factors um, that may influence you know risk for COVID-19 mortality or, or or certainly severity um you know we've some observations that visceral adiposity and and, and obesity you know may increase risk hypertension and underlying and um, cardiometabolic comorbidities yeah. may increase risk insofar as there is a relationship with diet then you know there, there is if we're starting to piece together a picture based on evidence um, that is accumulating from different lines. And if it's, if it's consistent and coherent, then we don't need to prove, we don't need to wait for an RCT to come along before we act on the basis of that information. And in acting on that information, it's where you frame whatever the advice is or recommendation 
such that it's essentially taking into account the, the margin of risk or the risk benefit ratio. Mm. Yeah, I think again that that idea of proof being relative is is a very it's a very interesting. Well, again, I suppose your law background gives it a very tangible example of where you know you've given two examples there of where where proof is a different thing and really how, how would you to how would you go about defining proof in a nutrition or diet sense is is proof that everyone agrees yeah. is proof that you have one rct 10 rcts um an rct and five epidemiological studies an rct and a thousand epidemiological studies if it's going to be a case of well everyone agrees indefinitely then there's no proof of anything in nutrition because you're you know you're never going to have anyone or sorry you're never going to have everyone um agreeing on any one thing right so yeah it, it it's 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 important i think to to recognize that 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 proof is is i don't want to say that proof changes but the the standard that must be proof, reached proof for, is a process yeah exactly and the standard that must be reached in order to say okay we have proof is different depending on what the the exposure outcome whatever it is that you're talking about and and maybe maybe that's getting into philosophy, which is something I definitely don't want to do because I know you're gonna <laughs> you're 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 gonna wipe the floor um, in that sense. Yeah, I, I'm ready to dive in. Um, no, but but I, you're right. And I, I, the, the, what it comes back to for me is like you know think about thinking about proof as a process, right? So mm-hmm. proof can be if we take smoking for example, like there was again no RCT. That's often used as an example. There was no RCT that, that proved smoking causes cancer. What there was, you all accept that it's a causal relationship. What yeah. there was was a consensus of experts as to what a body of evidence meant in terms of yeah. causal relationship. And so in in an evolving situation like like COVID nineteen, where we're going to be relying more in the, in the immediate term on observations, on case control studies, on cross-sectional studies. That still is providing us with evidence. Evidence is just simply information mm. and, and proof or a sufficiency. is All proof is is sufficiency of evidence upon which to base a conclusion. So, and so that's a evidence process. is part so of that process that, of proof, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that means that we can and absolutely in, in a scientific context, but also having regard to public health principles like the precautionary principle, it's, it's incumbent on us to make decisions based on the available information. Um, in, to not do so may result potentially in, in harm somewhere either in the population or in at-risk groups. So, yeah. yeah, I think we've got to move away from that, um, you know, like John Unitas, who almost like, uh, from what I read in, a, in an article that he wrote, I, I just got this sense that like he was almost portraying that COVID-19 isn't, you know. Say, like, say that again, sorry, that COVID-19 is what? You know, that, 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 that you know, we need, we need, we need interventions before yeah. we do anything with COVID-19. And, you know, if, if we took that approach, you know, well, we have a lot more bodies than we already do. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, I think, I think yeah. it's, it, it's, um, I think something you said there was, was quite interesting about the opinions of experts, for example. And, and it's a thing that, you know, 
And I'm not suggesting that after an hour's podcast that we should completely restructure the hierarchy of evidence, but it does sometimes make me wonder when you see the hierarchy that the expert opinion is the very bottom uh, rung on that on that pyramid because I I've <laughs> often thought well surely an expert opinion taking into account the rest of the pyramid is, is worth listening to maybe not necessarily something that you should pin your hat on it and hang your hat on it and say that it's ex- well you know this person said it therefore it's true but if you know I'm I'm thinking as a as someone who's just qualified as a dietitian if I go to a um, you know, a conference and I hear somebody speaking who uh, has practiced for X number of years and has sat on this board and this board and this board and that their assessment of the evidence is we should do intervention X, then maybe maybe I shouldn't, well, no, I definitely shouldn't just believe it out of, you know, straight away. But surely to to say that that's the bottom line of evidence is... is you know, is is definitely missing um, the nuance in that the the that that the fact that that bottom rung is the opinion and expert opinion in the absence of evidence, rather than ev- right. um, an expert's opinion on in, in a the, consensus. In yeah. consensus, exactly. I, I want. I wonder about that one sometimes. Is that a little bit unclear to people? Um, I know it was to me. I think definitely. it could be. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Like like you said, what that's referring to is like expert. In- in, in the context of someone just writing their own kind of opinion, their own thoughts, publishing yeah. it, and their own thoughts, and um, you know, we, we've seen a few kind of fairly dangerous examples of that in in in, in nutrition mm. um, over the past couple of years, and um, particularly kind of from the kind of low carb, high fat movement, where yeah. essentially opinion pieces have been published as if they're actual investigative as research, scientific yeah. papers, and as research, but. Um, you know, on the on the other hand, then you have, for example, the European Atherosclerosis Society published a consensus panel statement, mm. which contains, you know, a who's who of, of the world's most brilliant lipidologists and cardiovascular sciences, yeah, publish it, publishing a consensus statement uh, on the causal role of, of LDL cholesterol in in atherosclerosis. They published the first in 2017. They published a second one. Uh, this year this year yeah and it, you know that's that's a consensus of experts that's overwhelming exactly in terms of the veracity of that evidence um so yeah you're you're absolutely right that distinction is really important and 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 i think yeah just just to make it clear because i'm not sure how you know sometimes when you have a stream of consciousness and you think that's not really what i meant what i suppose i meant is that should there be an additional almost an additional rung on that which is um expert consensus in the presence of of evidence as well so so almost that should should we think about the hierarchy of evidence being bookended by expert consensus um again not not suggesting that based on this one podcast people will will completely um but i think i think we should consider the hierarchy of evidence uh as a as a dynamic as Mm. opposed to a static um kind of variable or static concept and there's a, there's a great uh, paper it was written in 1999 um it was a kind of like a critique of of, of evidence-based kind of medicine and thinking within mm-hmm. it and it just makes this point that like you know th- there is no hierarchy of evidence in a sense you know like every line of research has value in a certain sense and our job as as, as scientists and as people uh, you know receiving this this research 
is to appraise and, and put value on a study based on its own merits, not just by reference to an, an arb, a relatively arbitrary, all, all the hierarchy of evidence gives us an indication to is increasing ability of a trial to show causation. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that it does. And so we, it's a self-limiting and self-defeating exercise in, in, in appraisal of evidence to actually just look at a study and say, well, this study is better than that study because this study is an RCT and this yeah. study is a prospective cohort study. And this study is above that on this pyramid that I've got in my textbook. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so looking at it as a, as a dynamic um, guideline rather than a static rule, I suppose. Right, exactly. And, and something that we factor in to our overall assessment of an evidence base, but we're certainly not you know, tied to it in any context or we'd never be able to make decisions. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Right, I think we've. <laughs> I think anyone listening, I'm going to be listening back to this, and my head's going to be melting at this point. So I think it's. I think it's as good a place as any to leave it. Um, Alan, for anyone who wants to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, I know you're quite prominent on Instagram. It's it's the Nutritional Advocate is your handle. Yes. Yes. Um, do you use other platforms or is it mostly... No, I, I, I deliberately just... Otherwise, you'd be consumed by social media. So mm-hmm. uh, I deliberately keep social media small. Um, so Instagram is the only place that I operate on social media. But um, if people want to read uh, or follow my writing, I work as the chief research officer for Sigma Nutrition, which I imagine a lot of people will have heard of. Yeah. Um, and myself and Danny are doing, uh, uh, you know, a lot of content production there. And then I also, as you pointed out at the start, have my own website, which is alineanutrition.com. And that's very much focused on kind of research uh, appraisal for, for nutrition scientists. And it's, it's mostly kind of nutrition professionals and a few medical doctors that are, that are kind of hanging out there. So that's, yeah, they're the, they're the three venues that people will, will find me. Brilliant. And I, I would say to anyone who has a little bit of extra time on their hands um, to listen to the episode of Sigma Nutrition where you debated the um, LDL causality and the lipid triad, um, I would yeah, say yeah. is, is if, if you've got two hours knocking about and I say, well, it's, it's, I think it's about two hours long, but you probably need about three hours to listen to it because you're going to need... Um, Breaks in between. Drown in, in lipids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you yeah. if you if if you think that um that COVID is going too well for you and you've got plenty of time, then um then maybe give that a, a listen. Alan, thank you very much again, um for all your time and for a really interesting conversation. I think I've yeah. learned a lot. So um thanks, thanks again for having me. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Great. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to the podcast. So like I said at the very beginning, lots of learning points, I think, for myself personally and hopefully you as well from that conversation with Alan. And again, thank you very much to Alan for giving us his um, his time and, and a lot of his thoughts on a lot of the issues in nutrition research that we talked about and also some of the more contemporary issues. So if you did like that episode, if you did enjoy it and you feel you learned something from it, please do pass it along. It's something that I say at the end of most of the podcasts, but the probably the most difficult thing when you start a project like this is developing a, a regular sort of listenership. So if you know of somebody who you think would enjoy this or get something from it, please do share it with them. Um, please do share on social media or 
maybe give us some feedback on the things that you liked or didn't like and we can take all that into account and, and obviously improve um if you are interested in learning more about NedPro, obviously you can find us on social media, you can find us on our own website. In terms of upcoming events, we have a webinar on Thursday, June the 11th on cardiovascular disease uh, prevention. We also have our fifth summer school in applied human nutrition that will be taking place over a number of weekends in September. That will be an online event. And we also have our International Summit in Medical Nutrition Education and Research that will also take place in September as an online event. Um, so if you want to learn more about those, please do visit the website where you can read more or contact us via the website or via social media. Finally, if you are interested in becoming a member of the NEDPRO group, you can do that through our International Academy of Nutrition Educators that we call IAIN. So you'll be able to find details of that on our website as well if you are interested in learning more or please do get in contact with us for more information. So until the next episode, thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.